For those of you who are new this evening, welcome. We run a very informal show here, and we are right in the middle of the book at entry number 110. So I begin by asking, any questions or comments left over from last week or from before? Towards the end of last week's class, we were talking about, you were talking about life is a war. Can you hear me? I can't quite hear him. Uh-huh. Go ahead. You were talking about life being a war, a battle, yeah. et cetera. It sounds really terrible, doesn't it? Life is yes. a war, but it is. That's the problem I have. Um, battle sounds I thought a lot about better. that this week. Uh-huh. And I, you, know, you know, I've tried over the years hard to get a hold of that, but life at Ananda seems anything but a war and a battle. I'm happy, joyful, blissful, increasing love for God, for Master. I mean, I can't get my mind around... I, don't, I can't find a place to put that, or you know, a, a way to, 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 to use that or do, do anything with it, actually. Well, I say enjoy your good karma while it lasts. Uh, but I could probably say something more helpful than that. Well, let me phrase it this way, Tom. If you ask, if you ask me also, I think my life has just been one glorious, happy day, you know, start to finish. If you compare um, having guru bhais, living in community, being on a spiritual path, knowing who your teacher is, having practices, it's just like, you know, it's just this gigantic, overwhelming bushel of blessings compared to which nothing else matters. Um, has there been heartache? Has there been challenge? Has there been uh, uh, regret, recrimination, disappointment? Um, sure. Has it been effortless to keep in mind the blessings versus the challenges? No. And that's that's the nature of the the battle, is to not allow the small ups and downs to cause you to lose track of the the real arc of it. And, uh, you know, everybody has different challenges. And But, I mean, seriously, if you feel like, you're, you know, you're not, that you're, you're not, you don't have to suffer, you know, whereas in the past suffering and sorrow was the coin of man's redemption, for us now, that payment has been exchanged for calm, acceptance, and joy. But even shadows, even, you know, uh, whatever it says, the winds or something, I can't remember. Fear, like shadows on a statue. Yeah, and, you know, I certainly, as uh, blessed and positive as my life has been, um, you know, there's a lot of long days and nights when I'm just up against myself and they haven't, haven't been pretty. And struggle is the only word I can think of. Battle is the only word I can think of that actually s- describes it. And two things happen simultaneously the longer I'm on the path. The more I appreciate how really intense um, the effort really is to actually um, overcome the ego, not just... Um, see, if your center, if your natural center of gravity, as Swami called it in the uh, Education for Life, 
He talked about everybody has a natural center of gravity, which is just where you rest. And he, he puts it in the context of education for life, because when he's talking about teachers working with their students, and he talks about children are, are, are um, heavy, neutral, or light, and he just talks about you have to work differently with people who have a naturally, children or people who have a naturally heavy consciousness and those who have a naturally light consciousness. They're motivated by different things. Their experience of life is different. And it's one of the many templates that he offers through Education for Life for understanding your children if you're a teacher and yourself if you're, if you're a person. And so if you have reached the point in your karmic cycle where your, your center of gravity is light, that means that you know when everything comes to a rest, you don't you don't fall into depression, and so therefore, you can coast for a long time at that level, and not really appreciate the difference between merely having a light center of gravity and actually being free. And then at some point, God will take an interest in you, and He will begin to explain to you the difference, <laughs> and. Then there you are. Yes, Neha. Give Neha the microphone. I do think that it's a battle and it's a daily battle. And, and you can correct me if my thought process is incorrect. But it's a choice. I mean, for me, going to work and making choices about um, not saying something unfavorable about somebody or uh, not trying to uh, show that I'm better than somebody or uh, or that I'm only good if I'm better than somebody. So those choices, it's a day, there are days when I completely disgrace myself. And there are days when I've, I'm really proud of the achievements I've made. So I think that those daily choices are battles and that I struggle with them every day. And so... I can't, I can't both talk and have you guys talk at the same time, so I have to wait till they finish. Can you hear me now? Is it better? Okay. Navashan left for a month, so we're trying to replace him with more or less success at the moment. Okay, are you guys, are we happy? Um, I think the degree to which you actually are conscious of the willpower required is, it, is just, it depends how conscious and how conscientious you are. And uh, I find it more like you that there's this constant interplay between the superconscious and the subconscious. And if I'm not wide awake in the middle, then the subconscious has a way. If, if it doesn't come out in, in words, sometimes it comes out in thought. And it, it might not go to, to absolute dreariness and pain, but it uh, can. And it also can just simply drop from uh, japa, from God awareness, to something quite mundane, which doesn't it depends how sensitive you are, how terrible that is. And so it's just, I, I when uh, I was in the movie about uh, St. Bernadette of Lourdes, when we did the play for the children this last year, it, we didn't go all the way to her life in the convent and so on, but in uh, the true story of her life, when she was on her deathbed, or she went to her deathbed like four times before she actually died. I mean, they gave her last rites and everything. But in one of them, she was just tormented um, by uh, something she had done to her mother. 
mother worked all day to make the soup and we had so little money and she made the soup as well as she could and then I told her I didn't like it. And she just was heartsick over what she had done to her mother. I mean, the average person wouldn't even think about it, but in, in her white cloth of consciousness, that one inconsiderate action was really big. So she was struggling. She was struggling with remorse. She was struggling with the, what she thought was the unkindness of it in the first place, then remorse over it. Depends how sensitive you are. I, I don't find it effortless. I, my center of gravity is, relatively speaking, light, but I certainly don't find life effortless. And I'm supported by scripture. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, Sneha wants it back. Yeah. Sometimes it's karmic, too, because I know in my past I can remember times that the choice was to be happy or not, or to be in joy. Right. And then your karma spins down and you have a heck of a time remembering joy. Exactly. Well, I, I remember last year I mentioned that my a horoscope, I said my moon went into Hades. And that's how it felt to me. <laughs> just, you know, it was just like I could feel this malevolence just constantly. Fortunately, it stayed just outside my aura, but I felt it hovering, just looking for any opening. And the struggle was just to keep the aura dynamic enough that those uh, astrological influences didn't uh, blow my circuits. So I do find it myself to be a constant effort, whether you like the concept of battle or not. I just find if I let my guard down, um, the enemy, so to speak, just storms the gates. Desire my great enemy with his soldiers is surrounding me. He's giving me lots of trouble. <laughs> oh, my Lord. <laughs> so any, any other comments or questions? Yeah, oh my Lord. <laughs> that enemy I will defeat by staying in the castle of peace. Night and day in thy joy. Night and day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Number 110. Uh, he, meaning Master, was describing to some of us for our benefit what he had undergone during his recent illness. This experience was not physical though it affected the physical body. That's very interesting. I, I certainly watched things that were not physical affect Swami's physical body many, many times. It was not physical, though it affected my physical body. It was astral in nature. Demonic, demonic entities were torturing me. Ooh. Some of them were shaped like saws, other like corkscrews. I mean, just think of what he's describing. He's and he must be seeing them. He's seeing these dark entities from some dark place in the astral world activated and they're coming and they're sawing and they're screwing into as they were working on the legs. They were working on the legs, the legs of my astral body. So here it just so he's crippled in this world because in the astral world demons I just really noticed that they're, they're working on his astral body so his physical body wouldn't work. There's lots of things going on I don't understand. And then he says, Christ's crucifixion was bad. I love the way. Master was so natural. The reason I love this book, I love all of Swami's writings about Master, is because there's Master. He, there's, no, there's no big fancy word. 
Christ's crucifixion was bad. I mean, that's just Master just says it straight up like that. No, big Christ's crucifixion was indeed taken on the whole a difficult experience. He said Christ's crucifixion was bad. <laughs> but at least it was over in a few hours. The, this torture went on for months. Sometimes I kept my consciousness down to the physical body so that I might experience suffering as others do. I just, I'm so glad Swami wrote this book. And imagine, I mean, Master didn't stand up and say that to everyone. He confided that, I'm sure, to Swami or to just a few. Because Master couldn't walk. They, he, they were having to carry him here and there. He was sometimes in intense physical pain. And now why, why did Master bring his mind down from time to time? He could have transcended it. But he wanted to experience suffering as others do. He doesn't explain that. Was that in order to help others with their karma even more? Was it to teach somebody something? You just, there's no, uh, one can't, Swami doesn't comment because I'd, either he just didn't know or didn't know how to comment on it. And then he says, a nurse was hired to care for me. Um, she was completely materialistic and was actively hostile to the truths we teach here. And yet she had the karma to come into contact with him. But every time she turned me over, as she had to do because I couldn't turn myself, and here's Master so helpless, he can't turn himself in bed. I mean, and I'll, I'll come on that in just a minute. She did it with deliberate, unnecessary force, heedless of the pain it caused. At one moment there appeared in my forehead the blue light of destruction. I mean, I didn't know there was a blue light of destruction, but there it was, it appeared. Divine Mother's voice told me, give it to her. Jeez, this is a weird story. I, I could have destroyed that woman with a glance, but I knew this was God's test. Do as you like, Mother. I prayed, it is all your play. So there's, you know, a whole lot of, I think I talked about this a little bit with the last time, last week when we were talking about similar stories about Master. And I was telling you about that unusual night we had with Swamiji where he was suffering so much and didn't want us to call the doctor. But there's this, um, uh, what the story is really talking about and it's such a strange picture. It's the degree to which um, a master who has all the power of the universe at his command nonetheless surrenders himself entirely to whatever Divine Mother is sending him. Because he, he couldn't move himself in bed. He had this terrible nurse. I mean, why didn't he say, why don't we get a better nurse? But he just took what God gave him. And if, if she wasn't going to take it away from him, then he was just going to accept it. I, I've, I certainly watched with Swami on many, many different occasions. He, he didn't do the most obvious thing to amend his own situation when it would have just been so simple to amend it. And, and sometimes it was very distressing to others of us when he wouldn't speak up. You know, we had to be conscious enough to be watching all the time. An autobiography of a yogi, it's just a small story and it's not agonizing like this, but 
Remember, um, Master speaks of if any of those who were supposed to be taking care of Sri Yukteswar forgot to do his laundry, he would just do it himself. He wouldn't say, why don't you take care of this? He would just take care of it himself because it was their job to do so. And if they forgot, well, that's what Divine Mother sent to. When I worked for Swami as a secretary, and I used to come over every single afternoon to work for him, every afternoon when I came in, he seemed genuinely surprised to see me. Not surprised that I was keeping my commitment, but so completely surrendered to, so without expectations, that my coming was an act of free will every single time that I showed up. Instead of a, yes, of course you're there because I, you work for me and I pay your salary, and so naturally you would show up at this time. His, his inner response to it was, oh, look, there you are again, with the same kind of enthusiasm as if it was really the first time I walked in the door, because in his own self, it's just, he'd wiped, he wiped everything clean. I said that to him once. It's like every night you just give the, like you say, you give the whole thing back. And then the next morning you just wait to see what's going to be returned to you. <laughs> just, you know, with interest, to wait with interest to see uh, whether Divine Mother gives it back to you. So here's Master in this situation, even where um, it's almost like Divine Mother, in her concern for her child, lets him know that you are suffering, and I know you're suffering, and you could do something about it. Well, why should I? This is where in Sadhu Beware, Swami talks about um, if you really want to overcome the ego, why are you defending it all the time? Why are you explaining yourself? Why are you justifying it? Why are you trying to make it comfortable? Now, going back to last week, where Master said, you have to have a certain realization before you can instigate a certain level of tapasya. Otherwise, it will make you fanatical rather than free. So, most of you were here, but if you weren't, listen to that. So I won't say it all over again. But nonetheless, there is this when things don't go your way, whether you stop and try to fix them or whether you just accept that this is what God has sent me, why should I, why should I want it to be different? It's actually the most fun part that in Sadhu Beware is when people, don't, when people misunderstand you, he says, don't explain yourself. <laughs> it is very challenging and very fun. It's actually very fun to just sort of stand there and think, I think I'll just let it pass. Everybody's giving credit to someone else or whatever. Hmm. Now, of course, sometimes it causes confusion for you to do that and you shouldn't. But there's other times where there's nothing at stake except uh, your ego. And, and then it's quite a lark if you can win the battle and do it and not just let some little piece slide out. <laughs> All right. Any questions or comments? Number 111. Master counseled us on what it was... Oh, Master counseled us on what it was better to read and not to read. One evening he said, Why read the books of other paths? Too many people here, speaking of his own ashram, read endlessly from the writings of others while neglecting our own. You shouldn't mix your studies. If you do that too much, it becomes a kind of spiritual prostitution. 
The mind gets diluted by so many teachings and is easily confused. We had a lady living here once who read other teachings all the time. She was very nice, always kind and polite to everyone, but I used to tell her, why don't you read your own? Oh, all teachings are the same, she said. That's true, I said, but just the same. If you keep reading everything, you will get confused. You have to realize the truth behind those teachings. Only then will you know from realization that they are the same. Until that time, however, it will be like trying to cross a river in two boats, one foot in each of them. When the boats separate, you will fall between them and drown. Some differences do exist between the various teachings. With wisdom, they can be resolved. To the unenlightened mind, however, though they are superficial, they can be a cause of confusion. Well, she didn't heed my advice, but kept on with her eclectic reading. After a time, she drifted off. People must learn loyalty to one path. I think that's a very interesting word. She drifted off because she didn't anchor herself. And so when a tide came, she just flowed with that tide and went somewhere else. And some people don't think it matters. But it, it, he doesn't emphasize in this particular one. You know, this is always a difficult one. Because there is just a simple fact that the more you concentrate, the more you get into one vibration and the more powerful you become. But you can't do that until you really know where you belong and that this is really mine. I mean, this is among the many kind of disciplines that the battle of life is about, is to really concentrate. Because there are several things behind this. One is that, you know, real spiritual freedom doesn't come from knowledge. It comes from attunement and from grace. And so there's a big difference between getting lots of ideas in your mind and lots of different ways of saying things and lots of interesting interrelationships and actually having your consciousness tangibly uplifted. And so there's, there's different stages of being a devotee, really. I mean, there's a stage of being a devotee where you're, you are gathering information and you're just reading this one and reading this one and sort of understanding it this way and understanding it that way. And you can keep going on that, which is really, I mean, it's not a low level, but it's a horizontal plane where you're getting more and more sort of sources, eclectic sources. And then there's the point on the spiritual path um, where you really are just wanting to get out of suffering. <laughs> and you really, as, as Master put, puts it in other places, when you're really hungry, you, you don't really care all that much about what exactly you're eating. You just need something to eat. And so there's a point on the spiritual path where it's, it's really a hunger that's coming out of you. And that hunger is for freedom or for truth or however, whatever words strike you. But there's just a compelling inner urge that is moving you not to entertain your mind, but to actually change your consciousness. And when that becomes what you really want, and it, it can come before or long after you take discipleship in Kriya, but that hunger will bring you to your own spiritual path. It will bring you to a true master. It will bring you to initiation and commitment. But then what you do with it after is what determines whether or not that hunger is satisfied or whether 
after a while the inspiration runs out and you have to go in another direction. And part of it depends on how, um, how deep you go into that one reality so that your vibration can actually match the vibration of this path and the vibration of the masters. Because it's when your vibration actually matches that all of a sudden things begin to change for you. I, I, I read Swami's books, of course, a lot. And it's so interesting because having had the pleasure of being able to read them one at a time as he wrote them, which is a much better position than those of you who have come later are in, where you, you're looking at the rest of your life just to catch up. At least I had all these decades where I could just, there was just one and then another. But as a consequence, I have read them repeatedly. And it's very interesting to me how sometimes I feel that my consciousness is melding with what I'm reading. And sometimes I'm just reading. And it's, it's, it's very interesting because it's so tangibly, it's so dramatically different. And when my consciousness is melding with it, it's so clear to me why this is the only thing I should be reading because um, that's what I'm really looking for. Um, I'm reasonably well educated in the teachings, but when my consciousness melds with it, I just see something I didn't see before. Recently, I was asked to teach um, the, the um, eight limbs of Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, just, you know, your basic very basic in the sense of I first heard about it you know in 1968 was the first time I heard about it but I and I'm reading Swami's uh, Art and Science of Raja Yoga which I first started reading in 1969 and I don't think he's actually rewritten it very much I don't know what happened my consciousness melded with the words and I came and I gave that class and it was a really good class <laughs> And I don't know why, but I, I could feel it too. It was like something had connected. So it's like I didn't need to be reading a whole lot of other sources. I just needed to really connect. And that connection is so subtle, it's based on all of the moments that Sneha was referring to where we're constantly, I think, doing battle to keep our awareness where it needs to be so that every once in a while you just feel, as Master puts it in the introduction to Whispers from Eternity, and he challenges you to go behind ink and paper and feel the living spirit that is infused in these um, spiritualized prayers. He talks about the, you know, the living presence of God is in these prayers, but it's hidden behind the dots and the ink on the paper, and you have to go through the ink and the paper. And he says very colorfully, but really, because that's all you're holding. You're just holding ink and paper. Or in your Kindles, you're not even holding that. I don't even know what you're holding, but you know, you're holding something that isn't even there when you, you know, this is like if there was no one in the forest and the tree fell, would you hear it? Would there be any sound? <laughs> I, mean, I don't know what's in the Kindle, but whatever it is, it's, it's something that gives you their consciousness, strange as that seems. Remember the conversation between Swami and Master when Master said, if you asked Swamiji at their first meeting in 1948, did you like my autobiography? Swamiji said it was, it was the most living, it was alive. It was just a living presence. And Master said, 
That's because it has my vibrations. Remember Swami said all he could think of was something that you stood on that made you shake. The word vibrations was just not a word he'd ever heard. But he says it was alive in its power to change my consciousness. And it was just a book. So what Master's talking about is when you are fully concentrated, see, we take... um, We sometimes take Master's care for us. I I want to use the word for granted. And we don't... uh, We don't help him as much as we could. Or we expect him to do more for us than he simply can. As long as we're vibrating on a wavelength that's not the same as his, it doesn't matter how much he pours out. We can't receive it. It's as simple as that. But he's always pouring it out. When I read the Raja Yoga book, you know, a, a couple of months ago, it was the same book. But I mean, really, I really thought it was new words. I really thought it was new words. But I know they weren't new words because I've had that book on my shelf for a long time and nobody has substituted it. It's the same book. But those words were... were I read them and I felt them differently because I was on his wavelength. And so everything we do that moves us off that wavelength just works against our own interests. So that's what Master's trying to say. I, I, I really don't like rules. And I really don't like to tell people this is what you must do, especially if it goes against their own thoughts or their own inclinations. Master said something to Swamiji when he was organizing the monks at SRF. First, don't make too many rules. It spoils the spirit. But he also said those who meditate, who want to meditate, will. And those who don't want to meditate, won't. <laughs> you know? And it just doesn't matter how much you try to organize it to make them. If they want to, they will. And if they don't, they won't. And so I prefer to just have it be there. And of course, it helps if you, if, if you want to help people. And Swamiji felt when he went into the, when he was put in charge of the monks back in 1948 there, that it was, nobody was helping them. And, and if it, they had a little more structure and a few more rules and a little bit more orderly way of life, it would help them hold to their aspirations. So that's a good idea. But you can't make people do something. So when people only read Master and Swami's books because they were told that they should only read them, um, I'd really prefer that they didn't. <laughs> but it's there, and you have to just weigh it. I had this particular um, book that I liked that I thought was inspiring. Swami didn't care much for it, but I thought it was good, about a Catholic saint. And I really liked it, and I went into seclusion, and I took it with me. And it was very interesting. I knew that Swami hadn't been as enthusiastic as I was, so that was in the back of my mind. But I liked it, so I took it with me. And Master had said, Don't, not all the Catholic saints are really in tune with our path. Only read those who are in tune with our path, he said. And he only mentioned St. Teresa of Avila and St. Francis, so we don't really know. St. John of the Cross, there are certainly others. Um, but I sat in seclusion and I read that book for just maybe 10 or 15 minutes. And I could just, I could feel it. I had to be in seclusion to feel it. But I could just feel that this was not on our wavelength. 
And I don't even really want to say whether it was good or bad, but it wasn't on our wavelength. And when I read it, my vibration began to go where that book was taking me. And it was, it was dissonant for me. You know, I wouldn't say it was dissonant. I would just say it was dissonant for me. I, I think I've told you that in early stage of my spiritual life in the 70s, I had, somebody gave me, and I had on the end of my mala this little wooden thing that somebody gave me, and on one side of it was a picture of Master, on the other side a picture of Ananda Moy Ma. And I wore that very happily for quite some time. And then I began to feel very uneasy. And it, even Ananda Moy Ma is about as close as we, you can get, but I really began to feel uneasy. And I, I, I traced it to the fact that I, I just... I shouldn't be wearing her picture. So I took it off and gave it away and immediately the feeling went away. So it, it was just, you just never know. It's not saying that, uh, that's what Master said, they may all be the same, but you have to realize it. And if you don't, then, and, and you know, when uh, Swamiji went to see Ananda Moy Ma in uh, 1972, 74, I think, is the time he went with a, a few other people. And they were sitting there with Ananda Moima, people from Ananda Jyotish and Nalini and Shraddha. And uh, not, not the Shraddha that's now, but it, another Shraddha. She died a few years after. Um, not because of the trip, but she died. <laughs> um, they wanted to ask Ma all these questions. And Ma kept saying to them, ask your guru. She wouldn't answer them. And she was actually directing them to Swami. You should be asking him. I, it's not appropriate for me to answer you. You should be asking him. Here's your link. Here's where your link. And then when they, Jyotish said, when they brought to her a question that had been given to them by one of her disciples in America, who was a friend, Hari Priya, Hari Priya had asked Jyotish to carry this question to Ma and get an answer and then carry it back. So they're answering various questions and Ma is just completely not answering them and telling him, ask your guru, that's something you should ask your guru. And then Jyotish asks this question for Haripriya and in great detail Ma answers. You know, just in very, very specific detail. Wants to make sure Jyotish has it just exactly right. So it wasn't that she couldn't. But even there, right there, she didn't want to uh, distract them from where they should be going. It's very serious. It's quite fun actually. I mean, these are the things that make it fun because then you get to explore your inner consciousness. This is not about reading, but it's a story Swami tells on himself. When he was in India sometime in the 80s maybe or the 70s, I think it, was, it must have been the early 80s, he was somewhere and he had the opportunity to meet a disciple of Lahiri Mahashaya or a disciple of a disciple and that... Uh, he's, he was a, a, an advanced soul and he offered Swami Kriyananda initiations into higher aspects of Kriya. And Swamiji meditated on it and he thought, well, you know, I was so young when Master died, I just didn't have the opportunity to receive these things from him, but this is our line through Kriya. So he did, he took that, but it wasn't merely instruction, it was also initiation. And Swami said six months later, he said from that point, at this is, he didn't see it immediately, he said, but from that point, he started feeling out of tune. And it was six months later 
that he, he, he really realized that he was just out of tune. And he traced it back to having accepted that. And then he just realized that why would I go anywhere except to Master? He's the one who initiated me. Why would I be looking anywhere else? And he repudiated the initiation, repudiated the practice that he'd gotten. He said immediately. He just was right back in harmony. Isn't it interesting? So, I mean, even at his level, even at his point, that's what he said. And then there's the story that's in my book about, about Swami Kriyananda that Diana tells, which is a great story. Diana was brand new on the path. She was actually living in Palo Alto at that time in our Atherton house. And Swami came to visit, and Diana was full of enthusiasm as she is, and she was taking a Reiki training course. And she was telling Swami about this fabulous Reiki training course and it was just so terrific and she was learning so much and it was just like Master's Path and so on like this. And Swami, in his way, he just looked at her and said, oh, if it's so great, then I should take it. And Diana just looked at him and said, oh, Swami, you don't need it. And then he just didn't say anything else. That was the end of it. Ten years later. Well, then, then she started getting more into the Reiki she began to see there were contradictions. She got more into this path. She lost interest. She put it down. But that whole incident with Swami just kind of was there. And, and uh, ten years later, when she was working to be a disciple on this path, seriously engaged in it, she thought to herself, what was Swami actually saying to me? And what, what she realized is that she looked at Swami and knew that he was so deep as a disciple with Master, that of course he didn't need anything else. And though then she asked herself, you know, why do I feel that I need something else? And she realized it wasn't a matter about the path, it was the way she was following it. And he was communicating all that to her. But not by telling her, but just by opening the door to her eventually having that experience. And it, it just, again, you know, these things just they come into alignment. So it's very, it's very good to have that picture out there and not do what is very tempting to do, which is, gee, that's a high mountain, and I'd rather feel like I'm standing on the top of a high mountain, so I think I'll just bring the mountain down to where I'm standing, and then I can claim that I'm on the top of it. And this is what people do. The actual demands of true discipleship are enormous. So I'll just lower the teaching and then I can claim that I'm fulfilling it. Far better to say that's the mountain and I'm halfway up, I'm a quarter of the way up, I'm standing in the meadow looking at it, whatever it might be, but that's actually the top of the mountain because if you lower it, then you have no place to go. Then you drift away because you've changed the teachings and then they don't work for you and then because they're not working for you, you go away. Better to just openly and totally fail at them than to change them and not know. But as long as you know where you stand, that's, that's just very honest. So Amiji was, uh, I was reading in something he wrote, he was talking about the superconscious has unlimited potential and, uh, you know, there's, if, any, if it can be done by anyone, it can be done by you and so on. And then he talked about when he first came as a disciple to Master, um, he said something was, he was supposed to do something. He says, I can't do that. And his fellow disciple, Norman, 
just with great affirmation, said, there's no such thing as can't like that. And Swami said, okay, I won't do that. (laughs) And he said, I won't is more authentic, he said, and it has that going for it. But it's not really what you should be saying either, but I love that. No, it's not that I can't, it's just that I won't, that's all. And that's what you want to be doing, seriously, on the spiritual path. Instead of saying, that's not right, you know, see, because the ego wants to justify itself. Just saying, yeah, that is, that would be better, but I'm not going to do it. Because I don't want to. But then, don't imagine, don't be surprised. You know, the extent to which you hold back, then what it's, you know, God can fill the size of a cup that you hold up to him. And if it's a thimble, that's all you get. If, you know, you're so busy filling it with other things. Any comments or thoughts about that? And also bear in mind, these are, this is advice to disciples. This isn't advice to people who are still shopping. Okay. Still dating. These are, those, these are for those who are married. Okay. With a marriage that lasts much longer than just life and death. Okay, number 112. I once asked him, Sir, if the thing that keeps us bound to the world is worldly desires, why don't those who commit suicide become liberated? It's a very, it's a very natural question, isn't it? Complete repudiation of this life. Obviously, considering the extreme measures they've adopted to escape this world, they have no desire to remain in it. What I love about Master is that he's just, it's so, he's so reasonable in his answers and it always makes so much sense. The Master chuckled as he contemplated this seeming paradox. <laughs> I think he was amused. But there must also, he replied, be a positive desire for God. And you know, this is like the turning of the whole spiritual path. When you're committing suicide, it's because there's no joy left. And that's, you know, what are the manifestations of God? It isn't complete repudiation. It's becoming aware of that vibration. Let me just, what did I write here? Oh, it, it, you may remember the, toward the very la- in the very last few months of Swamiji's life, because Swamiji, there's, there is a spiritual take, state called vairagya. And vairagya is a, is a very wonderful word that really doesn't have the subtlety in English. And Vairagi is a name, and it's a very nice name. And Vairagya is a disinclination for the world. It's not even just a I won't kind of energy. It's just a disinclination. And it's one of the uh, natural side effects of the perfection of Patanjali's yamas and the niyamas. I can't remember which one, but the, I think it might be brahmacharya. But there's just a natural disinclination. Like, you, you don't have to discipline yourself. You're just not inclined. You know, those of us who've been vegetarians for a very long time, or even perhaps when I started, it's just like I just developed a disinclination. It wasn't really like I had to fight against it. I just wasn't inclined that way. And there's just many things that people consider very attractive. Some people consider attractive. But after a while for the yoga, you're just disinclined toward it. Um, and, of course, that's the very best kind of renunciation because then that means that the desire has actually um, left you. 
that your your vrittis have actually calmed and you don't have that anymore. But the vairagya can can make you a little dark toward the world. And that's always the temptation. It just becomes like uh, your disinclination becomes an active distaste for what's going on around you. You know, I've joked without really joking about my constant battle against terrible music everywhere you know and but I, I realized that my disinclination for it had become an active distaste so like who's wrong you know if I'm allowing this which may easily objectively be defined as not uplifting but if I'm actually allowing my consciousness to become agitated because of it who's really at fault Swami tells that story, he he has told the story of when he was still living in San Francisco and um, he he recorded some of his songs and the recording engineer thought his songs had real merit and he he wanted to connect Swami with a certain musician and that musician was available on Saturday night on uh, somewhere wherever the nightclubs used to be or are still in San Francisco. So here's Swamiji having to go to this nightclub district on a Saturday night, and he was very conscious of where he was going. And he said he meditated, and he started singing Sri Ram, J Ram, J J Ram. And he said that he the the mantra, the the song was so deep in him. He said he just he was it was it was almost fun. He's walking down these streets, and at the nightclubs, people stand in the doorways and try to pull you in. I mean, how blatant, you know? It's just like they're trying to pull you into this essential experience and he said just he just the, the the mantra was so powerful he was just moving right with it so he was totally disinclined but because his consciousness was elevated there was no distaste it was just vibrations that were going on that had nothing to do with him you see the difference and he was centered in his own world and all of that and so, um, toward the end of his life, he, he, he issued in some letter or somewhere, I believe he wrote it, he just said, essentially, all my life I've had a, you know, kind of an, an, an aversion to being on this plane of consciousness. But he said, now I've realized that if God has put me here, he said, why would I do anything except accept it with joy? And he really just turn that you know, what difference does it make it was a because the the bliss of his own experience was so great that it just didn't make any difference what it was doing around him it was the only reality he had Tandav, huh? that sort of transcendence um, uh, is is also detachment mm-hmm. and the thing about suicides it seems is that they are not at all detached. They are very attached to the state of their life and how they think it should be, yeah. but they feel hopeless about it getting to that exactly. point. So it's really actually completely the opposite. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. They're absolutely bound by their circumstances, so bound by them that they desperately actually have to destroy something in the hope of destroying what is really their inner consciousness. Yeah, it's a very unfortunate thing. But Swamiji says we all go through everything. Master said we all go through everything. 
And uh, the reason we don't, if we, if we don't commit suicide now is because we've tried it. I mean, I, I, and, and he also said it's interesting. He says it gets to be a karmic habit. Just like alcoholism, as you know. I mean, they say now it's like it's in your genes and so on. But where do you get those genes? You get those genes from your chakras and your chakras are formed from your own actions. So if you've had an inclination to solve your problems by dulling your consciousness with substances, it will naturally occur to you to do it again. Just like a little child is interested in the things that it did before. I had this sense of myself as this great ballerina and was really heartsick years later to see my pictures. I really had remembered myself quite differently. <laughs> yeah. And I have a very vivid memory of, I couldn't have been much more than four, of making this little sculpture out of mud and wanting my mother to put it in the oven. And I remembered the sculpture. It was exquisite. It was two, three little round balls piled on top of each other. But it was a masterpiece to me, and I was extremely distressed that she wasn't going to be able to bronze it or whatever I thought she was going to be able to do. But it was so vivid in my mind that I know now that I was... Uh, some people say that when children are doing things that they actually are in their own consciousness, they're in previous lives. So their complete sincerity is not just because they're stupid. They're actually just disconnected and they are connected to something, you know, so when the little dancer, you know, mommy, watch me and you pick up the scarves and you go like this, but you're back on the stage of the New York Ballet and you're you know, the audience is cheering you. And one of those marvelous things that appears on the internet, this one of those uh, girls who has a, had a woman's soprano, exquisite soprano, at the age of 10 now, she actually said, she, she just constantly imagined herself on a balcony with hundreds of people <laughs> adoring her. Without reincarnation, you think, what is this? But it was so clear with reincarnation She'd been there. She'd been singing for all those people and it was so... She was just going to do it again. She was, you know, she wasn't even going to wait till puberty. She was just going to do it right. And that you're just living in that. Um, now, what was I saying? What, what was the point before that? Oh, suicide. Oh, yes, it gets to be a habit. So that if things are going badly... A woman friend of mine who had that habit, she hasn't, thank you God, done that to herself this lifetime. But she said to me, it was so poignant. We were sitting upstairs in one of the apartments. She was talking to me and I was, we were dealing with something that was making her very sad. And she just looked at me and she said, I have an almost irresistible urge to go throw myself off the balcony. She said, whenever anything, whenever I meet any trouble in my life, I want to throw myself off a high building. I thought, oh, you poor child. But she's now, and it looks like she's going to make it through. You know, she's not going to do it. But uh, there you have it. It's serious, yeah. Okay, let's take a short break. I was standing somewhere in the community today. Yeah, I was standing somewhere in community today. Ooh, I left a paragraph off of number one, one fourteen, or one thirteen, one twelve. Okay. Do we have any more comments or questions on what we were talking about? Yes, uh, you need a microphone because otherwise there's a blank space on the recording. 
remember it now. <laughs> okay. Um, it's it's uh, where you were talking about um, getting thrown off the track by other paths and different vibrations. Hold the microphone a little oh, closer, closer to your mouth. Where you were talking about being thrown off the path by um, other vibrations from other right. sources. And what I'm wondering is, does that apply to like reading novels too? I mean, there are going to be different vibrations too. Or is it, are we talking more about just because they're on the same wavelength we're talking about and there's a conflict in them, or is it just... Um, well, you can... It, you, you don't want to split the wood because you make the screw too tight. So you can narrow and narrow and narrow and narrow your options, but if you narrow them too far, you lose everything because you just make yourself... You can't hold it and then you bust out of it. Um, so anything that you bring into your consciousness is going to affect your vibration. So many, many things um, that I choose to bring into my consciousness, if I actually were, were able to, I wouldn't. But if I can't be, you know, perfect, I have to just choose where I'm able to rest and still be able to sustain myself now, what Master's talking about, though, with specific teachings, it's probably better to read P.G. Woodhouse than, you know, it's, it's confusing. No, it's a, it's a confusing... Everything affects your consciousness and everything has a vibration. Swamiji did recreational reading. He read novels. He read fewer... At the end of his life, he read fewer. He read a lot of P.G. Woodhouse. But he would go on an airplane ride and he would always go to the bookstore and he would pick up a book or this book or that book and um, sometimes he would throw them away and sometimes he would say, you know, they were nice reading. So he did recreational reading. He wasn't rigid that way. And I myself am a recreational reader, but I, over the years, have tried to bring the vibrations better and better. And I'm not always perfect because it's my drug, you know, and I think it's better than other things might be. So I just have to look at who I am realistically. That's the top of the mountain and I'm standing here and on some days I feel like walking and some days I feel like lying down and reading a novel. And there you have it. It's nothing for me. I'm not proud of it. I mean, and it doesn't really help me, but it helps me because this is a long distance run. And if I, if I cut the options too small, uh, the path will become so narrow I'll just run away from it. So that's this is exactly like, well, here's the teaching, and that would be ideal. Don't pollute your mind with any of these vibrations, and here's me. So I have to, you have to do the top end of the bottom of what you're doing. How I was trying to distinguish, I mean, because I sort of know what you're talking about here, but but what I wondered is, like, if you if you say not to read... About is it better to read the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna or Ananda, Life with Ananda Ma than it is to read a Rumi Karelli novel? Is it better to read somebody like that saint you were talking about who wasn't quite on our path as opposed to... Well, um, truthfully... A novel that has nothing to do with our path. I mean, that was kind of what well, I was the, trying to get Well, the at. implication here would be... Let me just think about this for a minute. If you're really putting yourself in tune with another ray, that is, a, is a, maybe a bigger conflict than just going dull for a while. I mean, I'm actually, I'm just trying to think that through. But that would, 
It also depends on why you're reading what you're reading and what you're reading and how it affects you. And I read the big biography of the Curiador. I mean, I've read lots of biographies of saints. That particular thing was very interesting. How that, but still, if I'm in seclusion, like sometimes I've gone into seclusion and I've taken like a biography of a saint or something like this. There's one example that I was speaking of, but there have been others. But in seclusion, I get sensitive enough and I don't enjoy it. But when I'm sitting in my house here, I like it. But if I'm sitting in seclusion, I don't. So it's a question of how sensitive you're becoming also. Yeah, I've certainly had that experience on many occasions, that that which worked at home did not work when I was in a more refined space inside myself. I remember when uh, when we dedicated this community in 1989, I think is when we had the dedication. We bought it in 89. We dedicated it in 1990. We dedicated it in the summer of 1990. And we made up this dance that we did to one of Swami's chants. And it was Sri Gurudeva Om, which was a very unfortunate choice. And we thought what we did was just so terrific. And Swami's first response, which as soon as he said it, I really heard it. It's like, you know, you're cavorting on the lawn to one of the most sacred chants I've ever written, you know. So our kind of like this, it was just so out of tune with the chant. He couldn't believe what we had done. And as soon as he said that, I really saw that. It was like, this was like so inappropriate. And uh, I said, okay, given... Taking aside the fact that, wow, another song might have been better. Um, I said, you know, what about it? And he, he had, what, what, we, what essentially came down to is he didn't want to give the impression that cavorting on the lawn was actual sadhana. <laughs> that it really had anything to do with Kriya Yoga. And I said, oh no, sir, we're not presenting it as sadhana. I said, it's in lieu of sitting home and watching a video. <laughs> I said, it's, you know, it's better for us to cavort on the lawn to this nice music together and have a good time than to just sit in our rooms and watch a movie. Okay, he said, on that level I understand. <laughs> but he, he didn't want us to begin to think that relative, I mean, it's not that it's not enjoyable. I myself really enjoy it, circle dancing and that sort of thing. I have lots of fun. And we, I've been more careful since then to use different chants, you know, that are just lighter than that one. Um, but I always just think of it like that. This is not really in lieu of meditation. This is in lieu of going to the movies. And then you're, then, then you're fine. Yes? So I'm just thinking, didn't we have, like, dancing to chanting at the farm open house. I wasn't oh, yeah. at that part of it. So what, and, and to me, like that's, I don't know if that's better or worse if it's being presented to people who are not necessarily familiar with Ananda or familiar with everything we do. I think it's a harmless pastime. I mean, that was the conversation I had with him. I said, it's, see, and, and I have to be fair to this because there are spiritual paths that are based around, and I won't call it cavorting on the lawn now. I'll call it, you know, sacred dancing. People get together and they sing sacred songs and they sing songs that have spiritual messages and they dance again. They take it very seriously 
as a spiritual practice. So I know people do that, and I myself enjoy it so much that I can understand why they would. This is, you know, the dancer samskar in me, that I really, really enjoy it. It's very uplifting. You feel united with other people. Your heart opens. You're, you know, you're often in... You know, there's lots of reasons why it's positive. But the experience of doing that is, is not nearly so transformative as uh, sitting in meditation and doing Kriya. And so from the perspective of Ananda if we're talking about what our actual spiritual path is and our uh, path to God communion, it is, you know, discipleship and practice of Kriya and silent meditation and all of those things. It's not singing and dancing together. However, as a wholesome pastime in the community, to sing and dance together is quite an enjoyable thing to do. It's just, it's a perfectly wholesome pastime. So that's the distinction he was trying to make. So when we're at the farm having an open house where we've invited the public and we're really just trying to enjoy ourselves. I mean, people in our society, I'll back up just a little. When I was working on the effort to incorporate Ananda as a California city, which was in 1981, and as part of that we were very engaged, those of us who are on the team, were very engaged with a lot of officials in the Nevada County area and so this one man who was the chairman of the committee that was going to make the decision for us, the government agency, when he invited us to his Christmas party, we said yes. So uh, Dallas Atkins and I, Dallas is, was a woman who was an attorney, and uh, she and I, I think it was just the two of us, uh, went to this uh, Christmas party, and he was an engineer, Cram Cramner Engineering. He was having a Christmas party, and we come into this big room, and there's nothing in the big room. There's a piano, but the piano is pushed in the corner and is facing the wall. And we're all just sort of standing there. And then everybody starts drinking. And I'm Dallas and I are sort of looking at each other like, no games, no music, you know, like, like no P.G. Woodhouse stories, no skits. Like, what are we going to do here? And then I realized that we were just going to drink. And at the more we drank, not that we were actually going to drink, but everybody was going to just drink. And the more they drank, the more they would imagine something was happening. <laughs> Even though nothing was happening. <laughs> because they don't understand clean, bright entertainment. You know, they don't understand how to just enjoy themselves in a simple, wholesome way. So when I look at our community among the... <laughs> yes, I know. It was really... It was actually like, you know, I lived in Ananda so long I've become quaint. <laughs> it took me such a long time even to figure out what was going on in the room, you know, much longer than Dallas was more recently to Ananda. She figured it out faster. Um, but when, I think one of, the, one of the many things that our community has to offer to people is clean, bright entertainment and how to enjoy yourself without drinking. At, at recently at uh, Rachel and Brian's wedding, which where they had a lot of their friends there, and I was sitting across the table at the rehearsal dinner, talking about things, and we were talking about the fact that you know this was a no alcohol wedding, and the man very you know he was a good man. He just leaned across the table. I said, "Well, if you don't drink, how are we all going to get along?" <laughs> I said, "I don't know. We just like actually will like each other. How about that?" <laughs> So, from that point of view, I think to 
be appropriate and pick the right music and dance, run around, cavort on the lawn and enjoy each other, I think is a very positive thing for Ananda to represent. Yeah. For me, it's just because I come from having had such a long, intense mm -hmm. um, phase of my life that was so involved with dancing. I have such association with it. Right. And the things I liked about are so completely different from the things I liked about chanting. Right. You know, like I was asked to be part of that at the, at the farm day, and I, I just had to say no. Because, no, like, you, yeah. I'm very, I just couldn't, I, I can't reconcile that in my mind. Um, you know, aside from the fact that I'm a monk and don't really yeah. want to get too far into the dancing these days anyway, it's just they don't even fit together right. in, in my consciousness. I, I don't feel I can get from one to the other. And, and you are absolutely right, and you should really, you know, as long as that's true for you, you should stick to it rigidly because it's, gonna, it's not, it doesn't serve you. But very, very few of the rest of us have had that kind of association. And when we're feeling more sensitive, we'll probably observe, as Swami immediately did, what could you have been thinking, Asha? I don't know, sir. It seemed like a good idea at the time. I don't know what to say, <laughs> you know, about that particular chant, especially. When you're, I wrote, I changed the words to Brother Bluebell and I made a humorous song and I told Swami, I've done this. And he said, and his first response was, Asha, not Bluebell. <laughs> And then he saw that I looked so distressed, and he sort of took it back. But I, I, it took me a while, but then I stopped using his melodies if I wanted to write comic songs. I did a few more of them before I heard him, but, yeah. Those two. <laughs> but you've been using Gilbert's. You haven't, we haven't been Right, there. right. Yeah. And that's why I've always felt like I would rather try to uplift something that's down here than sort of dumb down anything of Swami's. <laughs> you, were, you were smarter than I. I, I. I had to swim down there for a long time before I thought, whoa, this is really not the right thing to do. Yeah, it was. I mean, I didn't get the hint. Swamiji, it's like he projects the thought. And he waits for you to pick it up and make it your own. He doesn't ram it down your throat if you're too dense to know it. Yeah. You know, rewriting songs that kind of ties back into what do we read, what do we do for yeah. enjoyment. You know, I have all these musical song scars that are still working themselves out in yeah. you know ways you know other than Swami's music. Right. Um, and I really enjoy other music and, and especially learning to play it on guitar and whatever and this gives me a way to kind of improve some of the stuff that part of me is going to be doing anyway yeah. <laughs> and you know start pushing it in a little bit better direction even you know if I can't set that aside entirely. That's, I mean that's exactly when you think about uh, you know from tamasic to sattvic every, everything has a range every, everything is on a spectrum so you, you kind of want to just move the whole spectrum up like this, but wherever you are on the spectrum, you just try to be at the upper end of it rather than the lower end of it. So if you're going to read a lot of novels or any novels, you try to scoot up to the upper end of it. And when, you, when I find an author whose things are lightweight enough or just trivial enough, or I, I've been reading really old books recently, because, you know, they, they were just cleaner and brighter. Where you find Christian authors or, you know, people who just... It's just completely different. Swami actually used to rather like the Harlequin Romance series. Because 
you know, they were they were pretty clean. There'd always be one passionate kiss somewhere, but you could just turn a couple of pages, you know. And there was no violence, and the good guy won. You know, it didn't turn out to be the nice person who was really the evil person, you know, just like the way it is now. They weren't cynical. They were just sweet, happy stories. And I mean, not that he really liked them, but they, but he comparatively, they were not horrible compared to a lot of stuff that's really horrible. So you just kind of work your way through that. Well, any other comments or thoughts? Yes, Kevin, use the microphone if you don't mind. You have to put it fairly close to your mouth to have it pick up. Earlier you had a, you had said that sometimes we don't need to explain ourselves. Yes. I was thinking um, if we can explain ourselves, is it easier to better understand and relate to each other? Well, see, you've raised a very, very good point. Um, to not explain yourself because you are completely at peace and you're only doing it to establish your own position in a way that's not particularly helpful. It's just, it's a very subtle teaching for coming to a certain peace within yourself. What you're talking about is whether or not you're going to give any of yourself to someone else or whether you're just going to hold your energy, um, I almost want to say selfishly within. But when you're really needing to build relationships with people to be too withdrawn and not be forthcoming enough is, is, is actually an ego protection rather than an ego transcendence. And so that's, that's why it's very subtle. Everything has to be, um, when we talk about it in other classes, it, it's, it has to be as to which direction it's taking you. But there's, there is a certain point where you're perfectly willing to share and give yourself, but all you're really trying to do is build your ego up by speaking. But there's a point down here whether you're, where you're protecting you're more protective by not speaking because you're not wanting to share, you're not wanting to expose yourself, you're not wanting to become intimate with someone, you're not wanting to commit. There's lots of good reasons why it's very important to express yourself. Or somebody expects something of you and there's a, there's a, a, a committed expectation here that you're not fulfilling. And there, there's nothing uh, selfless in that. That's completely self-centered. But there's, there have been situations, many, that happen in a completely different context where somebody's taking credit for your idea. And, you know, that's, everything's going to go out just fine. The only thing that's going to happen is you're not going to get credit. And so, you know, then you want to say, but I thought of that first. That's the time you keep your mouth shut. <laughs> you, you see how different those two things are. Yeah. Okay. Well, anything else? So we did 110 to 112.